Hello, and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I recently started practicing again. It's my cello, it's out! It's even vaguely in tune. I'm sure I'm not alone in that I find it remarkably easy to not play my instrument if I don't have anything to work towards. I'm just not one of those people who has to play every day. There are some people who are like, oh, I can't breathe without Bach. And if you're one of these people, then good for you, but it's just not my idea of fun. Naturally, given the current global situation, I didn't have any upcoming playing work, and the advent of the lockdown meant that I found myself pursuing other interests, such as vegetable gardening, playing Untitled Goose Game. Can you all please download that game and play it? Because it's just incredible. It's the best. What else have I been doing? Um, Making videos of dinosaurs and of myself reciting poetry up a tree. Learning how to do subtitles. This podcast... So I've been offered an online recital, which is equally exciting and terrifying. And of course, that means preparing, which means practice. I've got to say, the hardest part is just getting started. It can be demoralizing. I hadn't played in ages, and when you try and play new, challenging repertoire, all you can think is, oh my god, I suck. This is so hard. But I've got to remember, the reason why it's hard because I haven't practiced. Idiot. Of course it's going to be difficult if you don't do the thing. So I made sure I did some practice every day. And actually, without outside engagements to contend with, I noticed my improvements happening quicker than expected. My left-hand facility was coming back. I was noticing more ease in my right arm. I started thinking more musically again. Music making was becoming fun. Remember playing for pleasure? What a bizarre concept. (laughs) especially when a large chunk of my career involves sight reading and playing long notes quietly. Though I suppose it's a different type of pleasure derived from that. So it's like you always tell your students, you only get better with regular, efficient practice. I think I have to remember to follow my own advice sometimes. (laughs) My guest this episode is Jessie Grimes. I asked her what she wanted to be introduced as, and she said, first of all, musician. Oh. She plays clarinet, she runs workshops, and she's a presenter. We chatted in early April as we were settling into the new normal of lockdown, and I did something silly. I accidentally recorded my end of the conversation using my crappy laptop mic instead of my proper mic, which explains why my audio sounds a bit down the line underwater. Jessie is very passionate about many things, such as exercise and vegetable gardening. And she spoke about how life doesn't always go the way you plan as a musician. Have a listen. So, Jessie Grimes, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast remotely this week. Thanks for having me. It's weird, but nice to talk. (laughs) Actually, I haven't seen you in such a long time in person and feels funny to be catching up virtually via zoom yeah it's weird same with like all friends now though isn't it like there's people i accidentally didn't catch up with before all of the the gates came down and now you have to just do it this way that's it yeah and also it's quite funny because you don't have an excuse to get out of things unless you have another zoom party you can't be like oh no i'm really busy or i've got a rehearsal i quite i'm enjoying um practicing 
honesty, which is good. So last night, uh, my wife had set up like a board game online thing. And I just texted everyone. I was like, guys, I'm in terrible form. I'm going to go for a run. I might join you afterwards. I might not. Yeah. Instead of being like, oh, sorry, something's come up. I'm just like, I don't, I'm not, not going to be good at this. So bye. Yeah. Well, I think this is a thing. I think Zoom is going to exercise people's honesty, as you say, and also people's compassionate listening. Because when you have a Zoom party, you have to take turns. You can't just completely monopolize the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So as we know, for all musicians around the world, it's been a pretty crazy time and don't really need to say why. If you weren't in lockdown now, what would you be doing this week? I mean, I don't even know what week it is anymore. <laughs> it's, got, it's gotten to that stage. I really enjoyed last week, my trio were going to do, we were doing a Bridgewater Hall concert and we had done a whole dramatization of the Stravinsky Soldier's Tale with like acting and words and stuff and on the day that the concert was happening we really enjoyed texting each other being like guys there's cues out the door around the corner the <laughs> like i've been enjoying doing that on the days that i'm supposed to have gigs like texting my friends being like god that was great wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> i didn't play a single wrong note <laughs> yeah absolutely nailed it uh i don't even know what i'd be doing this week i guess it's the first week of the easter holidays isn't it so my i'm slightly different to like other orchestral musos in that I, I tend to cycle in my career between what I do so like one month I might be just doing loads of playing and another month I might not do any of it because I do um, workshoppy animateur stuff as well so I had a series of projects in with CLS City of London Symphonia doing work in psychiatric hospital schools and of course all the schools are shut as well so it tends to be rotating between playing or education projects or and then juggling a bit of teaching in the middle of all that I'm in a trio called the Jack Ann Trio, clarinet, violin and piano, or viola. She's Kay Stephen is very uh, versatile. We are still going to be doing the Albury Young Musician thing, AYM. Uh, they have like a, a youth kind of gathering of little talented musicians who play chamber music and it's amazing. Um, so we were supposed to be taking that, tutoring that. So we would now be preparing meeting up in the pianist Karis's house, doing mainly chats and tea, but trying to plan what we're going to do and also rehearsing so that we would perform for the young people, which now ain't happening. So I'll be meeting later on with Albra to see what we can do instead. Yeah. Oh God, it's it's gutting having cancellations, isn't it? Have you got anything lined up for after the summer? I have one gig in September that got rescheduled. I usually do the Wexford Festival Opera, which is six weeks in Ireland, which I adore just getting to be home and stuff as well. Um, so like possibly maybe that in October, but who knows if that's going to happen. I mean, there's festivals I'm doing in the summer that I don't know are cancelled, but they're probably cancelled. I'm just waiting for the day that they cancel the proms. I mean, if basically like Wimbledon's cancelled, things like Glastonbury, massive things cancelled. Man, the proms has to get cancelled. There's going to be nothing to do over the summer. Do you know, I have a small part of me though that like is really... I journal for like mental health reasons and I've been writing like day 23 or whatever. So from, from when we locked down and I did my last bit of work, which was the day before, you know, the week when they started doing all these announcements of like week, each day something got changed. Yeah. So I did my last thing running a workshop with the RPO on Sunday. And even that I was texting the fixer being like, are you sure? My wife is severely asthmatic. So like there's a feeling of like I could go to the shops and then kill her. <laughs> like oh, no. you know it's like it's it's it, 
you know that's that's where the worst thoughts go um so i i was messaging them and they were like well, we've cancelled all the orchestral gigs for the rpo so this is at least this is small so we can pay five players for a day so we're really reluctant to cancel and then i knew as a freelancer if i cancelled i would not get paid so i went and did it and i hated it and i was very anxious going yeah. up on the train but anyway so that was my last day and since then I've been kind of really enjoying it. I think I've been, we all, I think we all do this, no matter what, how you do your work. I feel like us freelance musos feel like we're sort of on this eternally spinning hamster wheel that you can't really get off. And I teach at the Royal College on a Saturday, the junior department, these amazing students. It's like highlight of the week, but it means that I don't have a weekend too, because my wife is a nine to fiver kind of, she works from home, but it means we have Sunday together and then you're back to work. Yeah. Um, so there was a sort of a big relief, I think, actually. I mean, yes, gutted, but actually to be like, okay, now life is these four walls and my little garden and going for runs and exercising. And actually for like mental health reasons, it's actually been quite good. I choose not to worry about the money because that's not going to help anything. And I can be proactive with different projects. I started to go online and do things. And I have a little bit of teaching. And actually for now, I'm really enjoying like doing my garden and I've made a list that just says at the top, if you feel like it. But I think that's a really important thing to remember as a freelancer is we don't always get to enjoy the perks that say nine to fivers get to enjoy in the weekend or their days off um, because our days off can sometimes be so few and far between or either that or you have a week where you're not doing so much at all. So then you start planning and preparing for the next project. But now because no one's doing anything we're sort of forced to go after these different non-musical pursuits that we wouldn't otherwise get to enjoy and it's been really nice and as you say really good for your mental health because it makes you realize that there's more out there than just you know preparing for the next concert and practicing my instrument as i mentioned before it's been a long time since i saw you and you mentioned that you were on trial for a job in an orchestra. And I think a lot of musicians coming out of college, they gear themselves up for winning that job, that audition, getting the dream job and then being set. Can you tell me how you feel about having a job based on your experience? Yeah, it's such a good one. I feel like maybe my perspective is a slightly more unspoken one. I don't hear people talk about it very much. So I came out of college, I was so started in Dublin, went to london and i was like babe pig in the city arriving they're like oh my god i can't believe they let me in i auditioned for every conservatory in the country because i thought i was so rubbish that they wouldn't let me in and then everywhere bar the royal academy of music anybody listening still holding a grudge there didn't let me in um but i got i got a great like scholarship to the college and i was like okay maybe i could do this and then things went really well at college i was like okay great and i left like on a massive high um, all these sort of prizey things. I'm not trying to do a brag, but just like I, I worked so hard. I ate triple decker sandwiches and drank Lucasade every day. I like I, I put on about two stone, but I was just like furiously practicing, and I really got like probably in some ways the peak of my technical ability at the end of that masters. And I came out and I was like, great, okay, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to get a job. It's going to be amazing. And I auditioned for probably 15 orchestras and got nowhere, nothing, not a like a penny. I got a couple of like, you're on the extra list, which is nice, but it's sort of that toll of that like rejection after rejection was really difficult. So eventually I was like, can I even get a trial? And all of this is going on at the same time as I'm also doing all this other work that's nothing to do with orchestral playing. 
So I finally did. And it was also an orchestra at home in Dublin, the RT Concert Orchestra. And as I left Dublin for my master's, I had set this thing of like, the dream would be to get a job in one of those RTE orchestras. RTE is like the BBC of mm. Ireland because you get contract and all that sort of cool stuff or, you know, salary those things that we don't have. Yeah, yeah, sick leave. <laughs> what? Human rights? <laughs> so I was like, that's my big dream. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get, hopefully, at some stage, I might get a job teaching at the Royal Academy in Dublin. And, you know, that is the absolute pinnacle of a dream. And suddenly I was faced with the the chance that I, that, that was a reality. There are only three of us on trial. Like, there was a decent odds. And throughout the process of doing it, I think I realised it wasn't what I wanted a, I don't think I was ready to move home to Dublin, which is a big surprise because I always thought I wanted to move home. But I adore my life here in London and I have beautiful friends really close by and an amazing community. And the idea that the sort of uh, there's no ceiling in what you can do here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing as a musician is that you can't be picky with where you get work, really. And while I think a lot of people think, oh, it's the dream to get that job back in your hometown. Actually, you set up your life where you set down your roots, right? And as you mentioned, you know, having a nice community, having a nice place to live and just a, a nice variety of work, I think is really, really important. And it is it's quite surprising, I think. Yeah. And I think I learned a lot from my wife, who is a freelance filmmaker and storybook writer, like young adult novels and picture books and things. But she went on a big journey from running a company with her sister to going on going it alone having seen the freelance life I had uh, but she she's really taught me about a, a way of thinking that I don't think us musicians have of like I cannot take that work I can not do that I can decide I want to have this time off or I can choose and actually look at it and say it might be a prestigious gig or it might be a fancy thing but actually it doesn't pay me very well so I'm going to say unless you're going to pay me this much this is my day rate now and I think the, it was such a liberating idea because orchestrally, I mean, the, the rates are set. The musicians union are like, this is what you're getting paid. But anything else that has any negotiation around it, I've sort of now been learning to like value my own time. What? And through all of that, I think I've managed to set up a way of like earning enough money that, you know, we have a little house, got a little mortgage. Never thought I could do that. Well done. Thanks. And through this process of a year of being on trial, I knew I knew kind of early on, but I did, couldn't tell myself one of the trial patches was to do uh, Rhapsody in Blue, that famous clarinet solo. That intro, yeah. Like, that's a dream to do that with an amazing orchestra like them. And I had was also at the same time booked for a month of work um, with an orchestra called Symphonia Viva, who are based in Derby, who do the most incredible education work I've ever done with any orchestra. And we have this project we've been doing for three years where we go into SCN schools and do one-to-one -one exploration of instruments with the most severely in need students. So the kids who wouldn't normally get put on a music project because they're just not okay, they're not well. And I chose that over Rhapsody in Blue. And I could have bailed out of the entire Viva project. And I think that was a real tell. Yeah. I tried a little bit like, oh, any chance I could miss that date or two? And they were like, I'm afraid not. It's all set. So yeah. you have to choose. And that was a big moment of like, okay, that's telling me something about what I want to do. It's like following your heart as to what you really value, what you think is the most important work. Yeah. I mean, looking at it now, 
the amazingly talented, wonderful human being who did get the job has now got a contract and is getting paid and I'm not. <laughs> um, but like, <laughs> it feels weird to tell that story to myself now. I think old Jesse would have been like, well, you just failed the trial. You didn't do it because you didn't, you didn't get it. But actually, I know from about halfway through the decisions that I was making were the decision for myself and actually ultimately I think I'm so happy that that is not the way my life ended up going. The idea that you have control actually because I I think often we don't. We think whoever books me that's who I am at that moment but actually I'm slowly learning hitting my mid-30s that I've got some own my own power. Yeah I think that's a really important thing to hold on to especially in this time where we feel like we're not in control. So many strands of our income are just you know, falling through our fingers, but having something that you can really, you know, hold on to. I mean, that's why I do this podcast, even though it doesn't make me any money, but at least it's something to work towards. And let's say that, you know, I come out of the other end of lockdown, having acquired a few more skills, that can only be a good thing. And I think it's just quite useful to think of these things as an investment in yourself, even if it's not earning you any money at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm maybe also trying to make decisions not based on money anymore Mm -hmm. and not based on status i'm in therapy so i'm big into the old self-improvement the big question for me about that whole trial thing was like who do i who do i want to get that job for and i realized the answer was not for me it was for the person that wanted to impress people or the person that wanted to get approval yeah uh and actually that's not who i want to be yeah i think also partly is that a lot of students coming out of college, they, they're not really quite aware of the breadth of the industry that's out there. I think a lot of musicians would come out of college and they say, okay, what are my options? Get a job, teach, maybe play with a few ensembles, get extra work, but they might not be aware of the other things that you do, such as presenting and animateur work and, and things like that. There's, I think there's a problem in conservatoire still, maybe not anymore, but or probably that I feel like there's a um, sort of a ranking of prestige about the types of work. So top of the pile is the people who win a job, even the fact that you call it win a job. Second is like successful freelancing, working busily with like the big orchestras. And then underneath that is probably, you know, chamber music, depending on the level of it, depending on the prizes, your places you're playing, all that stuff. And then Teaching is still, in some places, a sort of a dirty word, like what you do when you fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that stigma, isn't there? And people say, oh, I'm just teaching. It's like, why do you why do you say that? You know, you are yeah. making a living. Yeah, but also it's, and I think it's also a vocational thing that if you, if you some people just teach because they need to make money, just teach. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think of it for me that way because it gives me energy and I'm inspired by it. And I enjoy it. And I've really been very uh, fortunate in the jobs that I've gotten. So I've now managed to get myself a baby conservatoire and a posh school, which is like the dream that I've tried for 10 years to get. And I came to London with a, a degree in music education. So I thought I'd be set. I'd get straight into those jobs. No, no. But yeah, I think some people still, it's still a thing of like, yeah, doing education work isn't valued in the same way or doing anything else it seems to and it's been a a journey for me this year to actually really believe and understand for myself that it's not anything to do with failure it's active decisions and choices and and the sort of representation of that is like choosing to work in derby and sen schools over doing 
yeah. Rhapsody in Blue. Like if I if I I knew myself ten years ago, I would have been like, you're, you're joking. That's what you, that's the decision you made. But actually, now knowing what makes me happy, and also I, I don't know, being able to be at ho- home in an evening, doing fewer concerts, picking and choosing what I want to do, be able to have a routine sometimes is hugely valued. And I have like close, deep friends I adore who work with like the the biggest orchestras in the world and play the most amazing stuff but i'll talk to them and, I'll, and they'll be like oh yeah i'm in in glasgow next week and then i'm in cardiff and then I'm, and they're just on this cur- constant treadmill yeah it's like they they don't have time to do their laundry are always living out of a suitcase i mean i have to say i do that sometimes yeah and i mean i do as well i go through periods of it but i i just don't want that to be my life mm-hmm. i value the other things more now yeah. And that's something I would never have said 10 years ago. That's something to do with growing up, maybe. <laughs> but having time to, like, spend time with my friends, spend time with my wife, spend time with her family when we're allowed, when we're permitted to see. I've got baby twin nephews. I've met them twice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm not going to see them till they're not babies anymore. Wow. Well, you've just got to keep in touch with them via the magic right. of technology. It's not the same. You can't smell the baby smell through the phone. <laughs> But that also means you can't smell the poo. <laughs> Just moving on. I would assume that working in such a variety of environments really keeps you on your toes. You mentioned working with SEN kids, vulnerable people. You've mentioned before working with homeless people as well and vulnerable women. And not to mention also the energy you need to get through all these quite challenging situations. So tell me about your approach in these projects. I love this question because it's something I'm constantly thinking about and I'm quite passionate about. There's a small collection of, it's much smaller, uh, what's the word, sector, the sort of workshop leading thing that I'm, I've sort of found myself in. Mainly in the last two years, slight backstory, had two massive hip operations. And as part of that, I had pause for thought and say, just say, what, A, I can't travel and like get on a plane and go and do concerts. So what do I want to do? So I spent a bit of time investing in that area of workshop leading. I've worked for Live Music Now. Do you know that organization? Yeah. They're amazing. I worked with them for 10 years with my trio. And I realized how much I loved that working in special schools and care homes and stuff like that. So about yeah, two years ago, I decided to invest a little bit more in that. So applied for schemes and things like Wigmore Halls and Spitalfields and uh, what else? The London Early Years Music Network. They're quite nice. Sound connections. And just got to know people. And again, through it's uh, unfortunately, I think it's the same as the playing world. It is about who you know and who likes you and stuff like that. But fortunately fell on my feet and started to build up some nice work with that so I am in all these diverse different places and it does take a huge amount out of you like there was a week where I was doing a culmination of a two-month project with four schools in Derby on stage and six in the audience getting them singing songs written about the environment with an amazing talented man called James Redwood and we were talking about this how much it takes out of you how much how exhausting it is and then the next morning you're on a train and you go and I'm back to London and I'm preparing and the day after I'm in in a psychiatric hospital working with inpatients exploring music and it takes a, a different type of energy out of you actually I come home really like drained and exhausted mm-hmm. I've like had to develop a language with my wife of like talking about how much battery I have and it's in terms of not just energy battery because she'd be like why do you want to go for a run then mm. it's to do with um how much you give of yourself 
And you get a little bit of that, maybe more in chamber music than orchestrally, when you're connecting with an audience and you're sharing energy. I imagine it's like emotional investment, isn't it? Yeah, it's emotional and yeah, it's hard to describe. It's an energy thing because you're basically, and I'm realizing more and more how much I love this particular thing, which is seeing a human being in all of their wholeness, in all of their self, doesn't matter if they're in a wheelchair or in a psychiatric hospital or in a temporary accommodation or something looking past all the things that a human being might be struggling with and just finding out who they are and like a have a laugh and make some music and find a way of connecting as just two human beings and it's really beautiful and sometimes really emotionally not draining i can i can get quite emotional about it so i found i think and i'm discussing a lot with these the small little sector of us about what we do for our own self-care because it can be really hard you can have people that you work with over a long project, like a six-week project. They might pass away in the middle of it. They might not be well enough or you might really get to know a young person for a couple of days and then they're discharged from hospital and you never see them again. Or you come in and they're readmitted again. And the you know, there's a lot of stuff about that that's very hard, but learning about what we do to protect ourselves emotionally I would one colleague recommend to leave leave those people at the door. I think it's a similar thing to what maybe therapists do, where they see a, fo- a human fully and then cannot carry their problems with them the whole time. So putting it in a little box somewhere and being like, okay, thank you for that. You have to detach yourself. Yeah, and in a healthy way, not in a like emotional detachment shutdown way, in like learning to put things. So I journal after very challenging days like that. I have a little book of like, emotions so if i'm sitting on a train going home i'll write down things that happened or things i felt and also trying to if it's not already built in within the organization insisting on a debrief at the end of the day for 30 minutes and everyone wants just to pack up their instruments and get out of there but actually to say oh this happened and i found did you hear when this person said this this was amazing or actually i found it really challenging and i felt feelings of like and things that people find it hard to say, like I found feelings of disgust at the um, smell or I found that really hard to see someone in so much pain. But saying all the things that you would otherwise carry home and feel a bit bad about, it's like getting them out. Because I, I guess in that way you're exercising honesty, as we've mentioned before, but also having those ideas out in the open makes it okay for other people to air their grievances as well. And I think from that for the people that you're working with, you get to build up the sense of solidarity so that you're not alone in feeling what you feel or witnessing what you witness. Yeah, and taking, being sure to check in. I've got one very beloved colleague who I do these one-to-one projects with uh, in special needs schools where we spend like 30 minutes with one student and we're kind of crawling around the floor playing with all sorts of different instruments and it can be beautiful. It can be hilarious and it can be really hard. But we have developed in our own way always texting each other checking in afterwards thank you for a beautiful session i found that really Mm. nice and then checking in saying hey you said you're gonna go for that run like sending each other stupid sweaty selfies of us like out for runs and things to building up just this support which i think is maybe something that doesn't exist so much in the performing world like there's a sort of bravado particularly in london people don't say oh that was amazing i found that so great yeah i think it depends perhaps on your circle and it depends also on your instruments as well. I, I definitely noticed there are some instrumental groups that are really, really good at having the solidarity. But there are probably some instruments 
I don't know, maybe clarinet's one of them where maybe it's quite easy to feel alone because a lot of the time, I don't know, maybe you're the only one in the ensemble, you're the only person playing that particular role. But also it can be just quite difficult to reach out and start that support network because you can have those feelings that might inhibit you like, oh, I'm not sure if I'd be welcome or, or maybe I'm coming across as too keen, too strong. And particularly, I think as a freelancer, when you go into a space with people who are holding a job, and maybe it's just my experience in the certain orchestras I've worked with more, there is uh, sometimes an energy that I find hard to be in, which is, uh, oh, when's the coffee break? Oh, God, are we on till this time? Ugh. That I don't want to be here. I'll get me out of here. Which is a sort of a, like a little armor that I think some people who've been in the job for a long time, because they do care, because they still play amazingly. And that there is somebody in there, I still believe, I hope, that really gives a crap about this amazing piece that we're playing, or it does enjoy the thing they're doing. But there's this sort of uh, lingo that goes around where it's everything is couched in like, oh, I wouldn't be here if I don't want to. I'd love a day off. Yeah. And I find that really hard as a freelancer, because I come in, I might not play in an orchestra for like two months and then suddenly I do a nice patch where I'm playing like a Mahler symphony and I'm like buzzing with it. I'm like, this is amazing music. I love it so much. And I sometimes, depending on the company, feel I have to sort of like keep that in a bit and be like, "Mm, this is fun. Yeah, I'm cool. This is cool. I do this all the time. Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's a little bit like how people, you know, go clang whenever someone says, you know, they just mention something that they've been doing, which might sound a little bit impressive. And it's like it inhibits the honesty. Again, we keep going back to this theme of honesty. Uh, But yeah, it stops people from being really honest about what they do, which could be very troublesome. And so people are so aware of how they come across to other people. They're not honest about how they actually feel about particular projects that they're doing. This is a big thing I've been thinking about since, since the lockdown. Because I don't know, I'm probably not the only one. I had a a while of thinking, who am I if I'm not doing all these creative projects? And I think one of my theories, this is like a hot take, that we always do something for somebody else. So our creativity as classical musicians is usually with somebody else's name on it, like an orchestra's name, an ensemble's name. Um, It's never usually your own self, unless you're a soloist who stands in front of the orchestra. It's never usually your actual name. Mm -hmm. So we, we learn to hide behind those things and don't like, oh, that piece was amazing but it wasn't me because I was part of a big machine or whatever even though quietly this is another whole other conversation which is the neurosis that everyone goes through in their like small individual part within an opera being like oh I didn't play that perfectly and like there's a whole thing going on above you like no it doesn't doesn't matter what you do really as long as you you know we get anyway that's a totally different thing but my theory is that because we always make our art usually make our art with someone else's name on the packet I think we as a industry or as a community struggle with our own identity. I think it's really strange in a broader sense among our artist community that hardly anyone has a website. I don't have a website because there's that narrative of like, oh, it's so clangy and cringy and oh, you don't want to push yourself or sell yourself too much. Nobody's to talk about the fact that they did uh, an amazing gig with the LSO last week. You know, um, there's this sort of thing of like this false modesty that has to exist because I think we all present ourselves under someone else's name. And I feel like now we're, a lot of us are in this place of like, oh, who am I now though? Because I'm just me in my bedroom. And I can see people doing like, you know, the acapella thing or, you know, starting new ideas. And, but 
I want to question, right, why you and I, I think both of us, a lot of people, have a little eye roll about like, oh, multi-tracking, people multi-tracking themselves. I think that is because I personally don't feel confident enough to do that about my and, and sell myself. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sort of a creative envy or something that goes on. And the people who have the balls to just do that, because what else can you be doing? I think there's a the eye roll comes from a place of like, yeah, not sure what I could do and who am I without the orchestras now? And I, I don't know. I don't have my idea fully formed, but you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think for me, eye roll for me because that would be my worst nightmare, <laughs> potentially. But maybe that's just me. I mean, I do have a lot of baggage attached to performing the cello. Obviously, it's something I do. But I would sooner release an episode of myself playing the double bass, an instrument that I don't even really play properly on social media, than I would release a short video of me playing cello 10 times multi-tracked on acapella. It's so interesting, isn't it? I think it just depends. You are not alone, my friend. If you're one of those people that's blessed to not have that baggage attached to what you do, and that's, I know a lot of soloists, you know, they have to be pushed on stage before they actually do the thing and then they do it and it's absolutely fine but there's a lot of anxiety um, attached to what they do but there are a lot of people their approach is more oh I'll just do it see what happens and they can just do it which is a skill I don't have but for me particularly maybe it's just my musical upbringing I think it's a common upbringing though it's you're absolutely you are the norm I think mm. that attitude of I'd rather play a kazoo <laughs> And it'd be funny because that's what it is, right? And even like when my wife is like, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday. Can we record a thing? The last instrument I will play is my clarinet. I'll pick up a random xylophone or something and do it because I'd rather do that because I think we're crippled by a perfectionism and it won't be good enough. And I I have so many questions. Um, I'm grateful that I'm part of uh, a community teaching the younger generation of kids because I feel an obligation to try and make them not feel that to own their selves and to own their creativity and their identity, because I think it gets worn away somehow. I think partly to do with traditional classical teaching, and we set a really, really high bar of expectation for ourselves. And obviously we do need to in order to do our jobs and pursue the things that we want to do. But sometimes you've just got to take a step back and be like, you know what, it's fine. We're constantly carrying this perfectionism which I think is super damaging like one of the things I did at um for my master's was I I did the MUS thing at the college which had a bit of academic stuff on it and I chose to do it on perfectionism and anxiety and mental health stuff because I think our industry is so tangled up because everything has to be perfect I think it can be super damaging to all of us I don't know I don't have fully formed ideas about it but I think I'm trying to like step away from it so I I'm a tra- I, I grew up playing trad Irish music for various re- reasons I'll go into with my therapist and not you. I stepped away from that a little bit and went more into the classical stuff. And for 10 years, I haven't really played my flute. And when all of this lockdown stuff happened, I called my sister who does play. She's amazing. She's a She works for an NGO and does brilliant work, but she's a brilliant trad player still. And I said, can you send me a tune once a week that I can learn on the flute? And we made a little group with a friend of mine who's an incredibly amazing classical flute player. And that's like a project I want to do now of like, be not good at something and be okay with that. (laughs) Just play for fun. Yeah, playing for fun. What? (laughs) Well, this is the perfect opportunity to do that, right? I mean, you've got got time. It's on my list of do it if you feel like it. Still haven't done it. (laughs) 
Clara sent me two tunes now. I haven't learned any of them. But we'll get there eventually. There'll be time. So I have to ask you, I know that you're a really keen vegetable gardener. I have to ask you about this because I'm currently a rookie veggie gardener. Just a couple of weeks ago, I planted my first seedlings. I have quite a few of them around me right now. So just to set the scene, here's, here's a courgette. Oh, congrats. Yay. Thank you. It hasn't died. Here's a chili plant. Oh, they're great. They're, they're oh. easier to kill. Easier to kill. Yeah, yeah. These are jalapenos, mm. hopefully. And I've got some other things going as well. So I've got multiple tomato plants. I've got carrots. I've got spring onions. Um, and I've also got cucumbers. Nice. But what I want to know is uh, what are you growing and what do you get out of vegetable gardening? Mate, this is like my main passion right now. Let me tell you, let me tell you a story because, you know, this is the forum for this sort of thing. Starts in 2011, maybe. Went through some terrible breakup vibes bad bad times around the time of my birthday and a friend of mine uh, for my birthday gave me a little grow your own sunflower kit and I planted these little sunflowers in these tiny cute little pots and as they grew I began to feel better and it was just this amazing realization of like I can go out every day and onto the little patio in the gaff I was living in and have my tea and water them and look at them and talk to them and see this magic of like put a seed in the ground and it turns into a plant Eventually, you didn't even eat the seeds of the plant. Like, madness. I just thought it was the most amazing, magical thing. And it, it sort of helped me through this time that I found really hard. And I think, actually, years ago with my trio, early on in college, you know you do those gigs in, like, churches in the middle of nowhere for, like, a tiny little music society. And, like, the old ladies thanked us with tomato plants. They did, actually. And I remember I, I was the only one out of the trio that didn't kill the tomatoes. I didn't even have a garden in the flat I was in at the time. They grew all the way up the walls. And I just found that interesting. That was, like, a separate thing, and I didn't do it for a while. So this year, I got the sunflowers. I was like, okay, I'm going to try something else. And there were some seeds from a past flatmate had left them. And I went out like hunting on the road. I didn't have very much money. Found like drawers and like wardrobes that people had dumped down the street and brought them back and filled them with soil and made this little higgledy-piggledy ridiculous garden that I was obsessed with and in love with. And I grew a lot of stuff there. And in fact, when I brought my now wife back to my house for the first time in the middle of winter, what did I do? Like we'd gone out. We we're like, oh, this is a, this is it's going to happen tonight. I bring her home. We'd been out. <laughs> Do you want tea and toast? Can I show you my garden? I genuinely did that. <laughs> what? A, like, what a pickup line. Let me show you your garden. She still slags me about this. So uh, fast forward to today. I'm looking out at my garden now. We did a big project two years ago. It's a tiny little um, London back garden, like split in half between the upstairs. Well, we're upstairs and our neighbours downstairs. But two years ago, we decided to make raised beds. We got like 200 planks of larch wood this is like the most lesbian thing in the world and we spent early early spring in the like pissing rain putting these um together so we now have one two three four five six seven beds like they're like two meter beds they're massive so the first year it took so long to do it took all summer just to make the second beds but we now have full of soil and last year summer was the first summer of a big crop so eventually i will have out there at the moment, because they grew over winter, I've got spinach and kale just there that I can eat whenever I want. Uh, we just finished our the last of our own potatoes. I'm going to have, I mean, this is boring for anyone else, but I don't care. I'm no, so passionate. I find it really interesting because I think the thing about gardening is that it 
forces you just to take a little bit of time out of your day, doesn't it? Yeah. And to think about something that's not attached to anything else that was perhaps stressing you out. Yeah. And I think that's, well, part of the reason why I decided to get into it during this lockdown was <laughs> financially, I thought I may have to live off the land fairly soon, Yeah. even though it's only my first year, very ambitious. But also I've never grown anything before. I know loads of people that do. They seem to love it. This is probably the best time and the best opportunity for me to try it. It is. And it's going to be great. And there will be a point in the summer we get a veg box delivery. They do the surplus veg and the wonky looking veg. So you're sort of saving stuff that would go get thrown out. But eventually we will have to either go down to the smallest box possible or not at all. Because I'm going to have courgettes and peas, kale, tomatoes, leek, beans, lettuce, spinach, That's so impressive. beetroot. I'm still going. Uh, squash. <laughs> potatoes i can set up a little because my, my joke dream has always been like i'll quit music and go and become a vegetable gardener and sell my stuff my produce covered in muck for five pounds each i don't think anyone would buy it but maybe now they will well maybe now i mean there's a huge local market i'm sure yeah i'm also very recently it's all to do there's something uh i think about starting something from scratch so everything i do i'm very stubborn it has to be from seed and the thing I just have gotten into now recently, very passionate as of like four days, is making sourdough. I got a friend of mine who's just given me sourdough mother yeast, made some sourdough. You and the rest of Instagram, I have to say. We, oh, well, here's my top tip for the lockdown. It's now a month yesterday I have been off social media. Not like left it, left it because, you know, career, blah, blah, blah. But I do not check it ever. And it's the best thing in the world. So okay. I think part of me might have been like, oh, I'm not going to make bread like every other jerk if I'd been on Instagram. But the fact that I'm not, it's so great. So you're not going to see all those billions of, of sourdough starter photos and sourdough pictures yeah. out there. I won't I won't tell you any more about that then, <laughs> so as not to burst your bubble. If anything, I'm probably spending more time on social media. This is just me because I like staying in touch with my friends in that way. And I see things that remind me of people I've been thinking about but also my husband Mark so we're big fans of cats we love cats we have a cat called Romeo the pod cat assistant producer he started this thing on his Facebook this page is the cat, called... right? yeah oh yeah yeah no Mark <laughs> he started this thing on his Facebook page called Daily Romeo where he just puts up a picture of Romeo no caption no explanation and he just invites other people to post pictures of their cats and I tell you it is one of the most joyous things about this lockdown, getting people say things like, this is the highlight of my day, which like, you know, to other people it might sound really, really sad, but I can really connect with that. It's just something, something really little and just something, again, very honest about being like, this is something small that makes me very, very happy. My, my quitting of it was way before all of this um, virus stuff happened. I was reading a book called, I can't even remember what it's called now, basically a saturation of the digital age and about how to digital minimalism that's what it's called and the whole thing was about questioning the role of d different tech in your life and challenging you to look thinking about like how many pickups of your phone all that sort of stuff and the, the challenge was to pick the thing that you think is least useful and just bin it for a month and see what happens see what would happen to your time and for me, I was compulsively on social media, just checking it. Some of it's great. Some of it's joyful. Twitter is a wonderful place full of hilarious people. But also for every happy thing, every like cat or sourdough loaf, there's also somebody doing something that you're either envious of or being a bit of a jerk online. And that for me was outweighing the positive. 
in terms mm-hmm. of like I was just there of a Tuesday in the afternoon and suddenly I was feeling angry or jealous or annoyed or sad and having that like emotional stuff being thrown at you all the time almost uninvited like if you imagined it just suddenly in your living room like somebody screaming there are thousands of people dying like (laughs) I don't need that so I choose now twice a day I'll look at the news I sound really smug it's really annoying (laughs) no I mean I think in a way I mean I'm not going to be giving up social media but my way to go about that as you say like to avoid that onslaught of information is to choose what i follow yes 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 and who i follow Mm. so this is why i feel like instagram is quite a happy place because yes there's lots of sourdough and lots of cats but also just nice pictures of pleasant things facebook can be a bit (gasps) sometimes because you just get all these people like shoving articles down your throat all this information about coronavirus that really I, I don't need to be looking at this. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I think and I, his, you know, his thing is not to totally bin it all, but at the end of the month, have a reevaluation and say, first of all, what did you do when you weren't doing all that checking of your phone and the news and all that sort of stuff? And like, did you read a book? What other things? It's about like all the hours in your day that you can claim back. And I think part of that will be when I get to the end of it. I'm not really diligently doing it, but what did I miss? And I'm not sure necessarily for me, Instagram is mostly about my brother's dogs in Dublin. (laughs) His girlfriend is amazing at like posting the dogs. And I mainly go on to look at the dogs or some comedians, you know, so actually I should, I think my shortcut will be text Emer and ask her for pictures of the dogs. (laughs) There you go. Then you don't need to use Instagram as a platform. I have a segment every episode of this podcast called the wildcard question round. And this is where you have the choice to choose what I ask you next based on three choices. Bring it on. Okay. So we have memorable gigs, exercise, and can't live without. Oh, I kind of want to do them all. Um, (laughs) But currently where I'm at right now today, it's exercise. Okay. So tell me, what's your recommended exercise during lockdown? Oh, that's very easy. Um, My beautiful friend, Adele, Chantelle Evans, is a personal trainer. And she is married to a tuba player, who's also my friend, Dickie Evans. And we have been doing in the park. This this is part of the reason I don't want to leave London. In my local park, every Monday and Friday for the past over a year, Adele has done Sydenham squats. And it's mostly local musicians, um, freelancers, and we meet up sometimes there's only four of us sometimes there's 10 of us and we do personal training and it's like squats and planks and push-ups but it's with your friends who you love so you get to catch up with them and you're outside it's like a recipe for happiness exercise outside community all the sort of stuff so Dell is now doing um squats online so mondays and fridays so i just did a very strong workout this morning because of work i was never able to do monday and friday every week for the last year but now I'm very diligently doing this so that's my Mondays and Fridays I'm big into this I'm also uh, big into running so I'm currently trying to get my 10k time down to under an hour finding it very hard um (laughs) but so I'm running on Saturday Sunday Tuesday Wednesday and then yoga as well I'm doing some yoga on other evenings so I'm like 
I exercise like every day. And if I'm not doing that, it's an hour long walk down to the river. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've got a Garmin that my wife like hates me talking about. She hates it. A a a Garmin watch, you know, like counts your steps, tells you how good you sleep. Got all the stats. Uh Got a little coach on here. Coach Greg tells me (laughs) to go running. Emma can't stand it. I'm always banging on about my steps and my my stats. I love it. So how many steps have you done? Oh, today today wasn't good. Today wasn't good because I cycled over to Forest Hill. So I've only got 2,000 steps, but I have done a very good core workout as well. And it's only one o'clock, so there is time to get that step count up. Oh, yeah. It's so annoying because it doesn't just say 10,000 steps. If you do more, then it's like, oh, now you have to do 12. It rounds up. Yeah, I only managed 11,000 yesterday and it didn't give me a tick. It was very cross. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity for people to become so much more active during lockdown. So it's one, one bright side. I think it's also for me, it's linked with the mental health stuff and um, feeling good about myself. I definitely need to get out and run every day. I had a very grumpy day yesterday. This is a thing. I think all of us are like that now with this lockdown vibe is that so, some days are just rubbish. They're just crap. You don't want to do anything. And I find in concentration really hard on anything. Yeah. So I had a really grumpy day yesterday and then finally went out for a run as it was getting dark and I came back a better person. So I, yeah, I, I hear you. I have had some really bad days and then you have good days and then who knows, there'll be another bad day. Oh, there have been weeps. Oh, there have been weeps. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast remotely. It's nice to see you. I know, really nice to see your face. I even put on outdoor clothes. I'm not wearing pajamas, even though this is a podcast. For everybody listening, I'm actually wearing jeans, which no one who knows me will believe it because I always wear tracksuits and a very um, loud shirt that's going to go with Matisse pictures in the background. Excellent. I know that you're not doing social media at the moment, but do you have anywhere where people can follow you? Uh, yeah. Jesse Grimes Clarinet. I'm on Instagram, I think. And I'm Jesse underscore Grimes on Twitter. And hopefully by the time, oh, here's my challenge. By the time you release this, I'll finally have made my own website, which will be jessiegrimes.com. Ah, um, uh, see, basically, this is how I finish every interview is people mentioning their websites and it's always me saying, oh, I've had the domain name for As It Comes for almost a year now and I still haven't done anything. But maybe, maybe during this lockdown, it will get done. Top of the list, tax return? Question mark. Are you going to do that? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Second on the list, website. It's going to happen. There you go. Well, didn't you say at the beginning that you just have, if you feel like I it. I have another one at the, the bottom, which is if you feel like it. If you fancy it. So this is like things you should really try and do at some stage, but I'm not going to. And then if you fancy it. Oh. Emma's written kiss your wife at the end. That's very cute. I hadn't noticed that before. Is that if you fancy it? (laughs) If you fancy it, kiss your wife. Brilliant. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. That was my conversation with Jesse. Huge thanks to my friend James Bryant, a sound wizard who helped me out with cleaning up the sound. You can imagine my panic when I was presented with a file that sounds like this. But thankfully, James was able to get me out of a tight spot and we could salvage the file. Thanks, James. This week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from various people who are now working or trying to work in supermarkets. As musicians, naturally a large portion of our income sources has dried up, so many of my colleagues are looking to supermarket jobs to get them through this difficult time. And from what I hear, it's not easy. Some supermarkets require you to submit an essay as to why you want the job. A lot of musos would find that challenging unless you did an academic degree, which reminds me, 
I wrote a thesis 10 years ago about the shared idiomatic characteristics of Beethoven's F major works for cello and piano. It was earth-shattering research right there, I tell you. I can't believe I did that. It's quite triggering. Anyway, it's not so simple to just submit your CV. There are countless applications being submitted every day, therefore numerous rejections due to other applicants who have scored higher or there were competitive levels of interest. In fact, that's one thing Music College has prepared a whole lot of people for, the rejection. The panel very much enjoyed your playing today and appreciate your preparation. However, the standard was very high and we are unable to offer you a trial on this occasion. We wish you all the best for your musical career. Sounds familiar? Seems kind of trivial now. A friend of mine is doing early morning shifts, starting at 5am, packing online orders. So that means she's home in the afternoon and sleeps from the early evening. Slight problem on Thursday nights, though, at 8pm. Here in the UK, people are applauding the NHS workers at this time, which means it's difficult for my friend to get to sleep. What's worse is that she lives in Scotland and one of her neighbours is a professional bagpiper who's been utilising their skills to show their appreciation for the frontline workers. So I think that's been difficult, to say the least. How about in future we show our appreciation for the NHS by not voting Conservative? If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for that you'd like to share or have discussed on the podcast, then let me know email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo, Daniel Alms for my jingle, and James Bryant for additional sound work. Magnificent thanks to Jesse Grimes for being my guest this episode and giving me useful advice for not killing my vegetable garden. And thank you, listeners, old and new, for tuning in. It's very heartening to see new people discover the podcast, so welcome. And to everyone, I hope you're keeping well and safe during these mad times. I'd love to hear from you, so do get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Stay well and chat to you soon. Bye! (laughs) 